Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me this fine Friday morning is my wonderful collaborator, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we're taking a look at what could be an improvement or a alteration uh, of our Constitution. Now, we need to recognize, first of all, our Constitution is the most successful written Constitution in the history of the world, 235 uh, years going on now, and uh, only 27 amendments. Ten of those, of course, were the uh, uh, first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, essential to our constitutional republic. And this experiment in liberty started by our founders was recognized that, you know, we might need to make alterations, which is why Article 5 exists in our constitution, the amendment process of saying uh, we need to change and alter something. So they recognized that they didn't have a perfect lock on what was a perfect government. But I believe looking at the history of it, uh, they have offered one of the best, if not the best, written constitutions that the history of mankind has ever known. I can't say it's the absolute best because I only uh, cite that there is one that was better, and that was the one handed down on Mount Sinai, where God gave to the children of Israel a Hebrew republic, a Hebrew republic that they botched pretty badly, as the book of Judges amply illustrates. And so they eventually demand that a monarchy, they were tired of the republic. And, uh, and it wasn't that the republic was, was the problem. The problem was the sinful heart of the Israelite people that refused to obey God. And therefore, instead of experiencing God's blessings, instead of experiencing God's protection from their enemies, they experienced God's judgment. And we could say that there's something very parallel going on in our uh, constitutional republic of these United States today. Indeed, the hand of God's judgment, I think, is heavy upon us, and it certainly could be turned up and become increasingly destructive if we, as these United States, do not turn from our wicked ways, repent of our sins, and go back uh, to the honoring and worshiping of the one true God, which was the case at the origin of our constitutional republic and clearly was the case throughout uh, much of the history of 150 plus years uh, of our republic, cases like uh, the end of the 19th century Holy Trinity, where uh, the Supreme Court clearly declared this is a Christian nation based on a Christian history and a Christian populace and and, and therefore, Christianity is given a favored status. This is the Supreme Court. This, this is what they said in Holy Trinity. You can read it for yourself. And uh, they were right because they were expressing that without a Christian populace, without that worldview essential to this constitutional republic, it wouldn't work. Our second president put it this way. This is uh, John Adams. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the governance of any other. That is, if you have a people who are immoral and say, hey, we want to flaunt the law of God. We want to flaunt the laws of morality. We want to do whatever we please Ah, this constitutional republic is not going to work for them, according to John Adams. Furthermore, if you have a people that are immoral rather than obedient to the moral standards of the God who created the universe, to whom all of our founders acknowledged he was the source 
of law. In fact, they said it was the laws of nature and nature's God, referring to the creator of of all things, that his standard of morality must be followed by the populace or uh, you're going to have anarchy. You're going to have destruction. You're going to have devastation. You're going to have, oh, let's say uh, criminals in the White House and a crime family on a crime spree selling out our country as traitors uh, for millions and millions of dollars in the pockets of those uh, uh, criminals in, in that crime family. Things like that going on. Our constitutional republic won't work for them. So we're in the beginning of a, a new series here with the people of Constitution Matters to examine if we were to propose a constitution, how would we structure it? What would be some of the things that are necessary to change in order to protect the God-given rights of we the people in order to structure it so that the government doesn't get out of control and, and become tyrannical and, and become abusive and become so corrupt and immoral as it clearly is uh, in our day today. How do we avoid getting into the mess that we are currently in? And so we're going to be proposing some ideas that uh, we would love your input as, as our listeners, as questions you might have, thoughts you might have in, in this discussion. You can use my email. That's dwitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at the American View, all one word, theamericanview.com. That's dwitney at theamericanview.com. We'd invite your input uh, because what we need to have take place is a nationwide discussion of the principles of governing a constitutional republic. And if our constitutional republic currently is not working, and I would contend, and Phil, I think you would agree with me on this, that it's not, well, what can we do to alter change it, modify it, uh, create a new constitution? What would be the avenue by which we can restore the vision of our founders that had in their, their aim a constitutional republic whose sole job and only purpose was to protect the God-given rights of the people uh, in this constitutional republic? Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts in this uh, brand new series? The Constitution of 1787 addresses a significant scope of ideas as the foundation for all legitimate statutory law in the United States is obviously a complex document. This Constitution, however, has a simple linear structure. The basic document has a beginning in Article 1 and an ending in Article 7. It soon had a Bill of Rights added as Amendments 1 to 10. Amendments 11 to 27 were subsequently added. Although not explicitly stated, the assumption is that any conflicts are resolved in favor of the most recent addition, the principle of abrogation in contracts. This worked well in the case of the 18th Amendment being eliminated in favor of the 21st. This is the wording of the 18th Amendment. After one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the import, uh, importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. <clears throat> Section 2, the Congress and the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The intent of this amendment is quite clear. Since prohibition didn't seem to work, 
the 21st Amendment essentially repealed the 18th according to this language. Section 1, the 18th Article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. Section 2, transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. <clears throat> Many people are not aware that Section 2 simply returned jurisdiction over so-called intoxicating liquors to the states, but the wording is clear. Now contrast that treatment of intoxicating liquors with the way the 16th Amendment treated income tax. First, the language of Article 1, Section 2 about direct taxation. <clears throat> Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned according to several states, which may be included within the union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. Now, the language of the 16th Amendment, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. Again, the language is clear, but there is no explicit language repealing the language about direct taxes in Article 1. To keep a constitution concise and understandable, it is reasonable to keep the language the way it is as long as there is a supporting document that is explicit. Today, there is no further text to suffic sufficiently support the interpretation of the 16th Amendment's wording, and court cases have arisen. Occasionally, the Federalist essays or Madison notes may be referenced by a judge, but these documents were published after the signing of the Constitution of the United States in September 1787. Even if these were official documents, they might be used for interpretation. No judge is compelled to consider them in an actual court case. Another issue is the wording of Article 1, Section 8 concerning the funding of military forces under the control of the federal government. This section says this about funding an army and a navy. The Congress shall have the power to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. And also, the Congress shall have the power to provide and maintain a Navy. These provisions clearly favor a Navy, which may be funded infinitely into the future, but an Army may only be funded for a maximum of two years. Why the discrimination? The founding generation feared standing armies and their potential to be used to coerce the citizenry. Other than threatening major cities, a Navy offered no such threat. There is no provision for funding an Air Force in the Constitution. <clears throat> is the potential threat of an Air Force comparable to an Army or a Navy? By the end of World War II, one might be suspicious, but the operation of our government's Air Force in Vietnam and Iraq makes it clear that it is a threat to a civilian population. But there is no explicit language in the Constitution 
to direct Congress concerning the funding of the Air Force. Ultimately today, if a legal action arose concerning this issue, a federal judge would issue an opinion. Article 1, Section 7 of the Constitution states, before the same shall take effect, shall be approved by him or being disapproved by him, um, excuse me, um, every order, resolution, or vote to which the concurrence of the Senate and the House of Representatives may be necessary, except on a question of adjournment, shall be presented to the President of the United States, and before the same shall take effect, shall be approved by him, or being disproved, disapproved by him, shall be repassed by two-thirds of the Senate and House of Representatives according to the rules and limitations prescribed in this, uh, in the case of a bill. <clears throat> Wait a minute. Article 1, Section 8 grants Congress the power to declare war, grant letters of mark and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on the land and water. <clears throat> Suppose that Congress passes a declaration of war. Does Article 1, Section 7 give the president the power to overrule Congress? Similarly, when World War II was nearly complete, uh, nearly nearing completion, could not Congress have passed a resolution that unconditional surrender was no longer sought and that a 15-day cessation of hostilities was to be granted to pursue an armistice? Could the president then have vetoed that action? Consider that after the first 10 amendments, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that only 17 amendments have been ratified by the states in 238 years. <clears throat> Since two of those amendments cancel each other, the 18th and the 21st, only 15 net amendments have been made in that period. Does that mean that the Constitution, as originally written, was a near-perfect document? If it were, why are we experiencing so much contention today? Why do we have immense power concentrated in the federal government that is clearly in conflict with the nation's founding principles? The truth is that there are many faults in our current Constitution, many minor, but major faults as well. A superficial view of the problem is that the ratification process is too cumbersome and that many of the minor changes should be delegated to Congress. Distinguishing between minor and major cha changes to the Constitution might be helpful, but delegating a minor change power to Congress is like putting the fox in charge of the chicken coop. There is a greater concern with that approach, however, <clears throat> The principle of representative government does not work by pushing responsibility for its operation away from the citizenry. That is what has happened in the past, and the detachment of government from the people has been a direct result of that. We are currently living the myth of democracy, which has three sub-myths. The first the United States broke from Britain over the issue of taxation without representation. The second, civic ignorance can be aggregated into collective wisdom 
in the operation of a federal government. And the third, the only check necessary for we the people on the federal government is to vote every other year for our represent representatives and every four years for president. The system will run automatically thanks to separation of powers, checks and balances, and the competition of the two major parties. The myth of democracy is the perfect formula for tyrannizing a large population, as pointed out by James Madison in several Federalist essays. Barbara Tuckman reveals the mythology surrounding taxation without representation. That myth works for tyrants who can claim that now that we have representation, we should just leave the governing to the ruling class and accept whatever taxation is imposed on us. After all, we do get to elect our representatives every two years. If we are displeased with their performance, all we need to do is vote them out of office. We have tried that for 238 years, and it hasn't worked. Insanity, after all, is supposed to be doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. It is time to look at how representative government might work at the level of a federation. The first principle is widely known and generally ignored by politicians. Keep federations limited to enumerated powers. The second principle is to truly penalize our representatives for violating a constitution. The third is to establish a constitutional framework in which needed change can be implemented relatively easily. The current constitution of 1787 does not do that. A new constitution would employ at least two levels of integrated documents, like most successful contracts in the private sector. The general concepts may be pre presented at the top level and much of the detail placed at the subsidiary level. As a simple example, a schedule to a new constitution would include a glossary of terms, terms such as regulation, coining money, and defense need to be ex uh, explicitly defined. The alternative is to create another ambiguous constitution and allow federal judges to interpret that document creatively and typically consistent with their own ideological agenda. Where do uh, documents like the Federalist essays and Madison's notes fit into this, uh, this structure? Let's look at the Federalist essays. Originalists on the bench, those judges who are oriented toward interpreting the Constitution according to its original intent, are fond of the Federalist essays. They are a big step over the progressive interpretation of the Constitution, which assumes that those powers specified in the document that are deemed to be out of date may be ignored. There are two realities about the Federalist Essays, however, that can't be ignored. One, that it was written after the Constitution's text had been written. And two, that it was written as a marketing document designed to persuade the states to ratify the Constitution. Promotional literature has its place in a free society, but it is not the same thing as the parties of a contract hammering out specific language. For example, in the Federalist Number 32, Hamilton addressed the concept of concurrent sovereignty between the federal government and the states. 
The basic idea was the Constitution, as originally created, enumerated powers that were to be granted to the federal government, but also powers that were to be denied to Congress in Article 1, Section 9, and the states in Article 1, Section 10. No doubt these were comforting words to the anti-federalists who feared that the Constitution would be used to assert implied federal powers. As soon as Hamilton was appointed Secretary of the Treasury under George Washington, he issued three reports to Congress on the subjects of assuming state debts, a national bank, and the support of manufacturers. All three were argued by Hamilton on the assertion that the federal government was granted implied powers. In a sense, the opposite of what he stated in The Federalist. The Federalist has no basis in law, and the federal courts are free to ignore Hamilton's previous statements in The Federalist. Under a new constitution, the explanations that exist in The Federalist would be written concurrently with the new constitution and would be a subsidiary document to it. As we address the appropriate structure for a new constitution, we should recognize a serious structural flaw in the current constitution. There is no language uh, specifying the relationship among the several systems of law that are referenced in it. The basic constitution and its amendments are the foundation, of course. The basic constitution first referenced the law of nations in Article 1, Section 8. What is the law of nations? How does it fit in the Constitution and its amendments? And how should it relate to other systems of law that might be referenced in future amendments to the Constitution? For example, there's a reference to the common law in Amendment 7. How do the law of nations and the common law relate? First, let's look at the law of nations. It is not a codified system but a reference to principles found in Emmer uh, D. Vattel's The Law of Nations, which in turn incorporates the thinking of earlier contributors to international laws such as Hugo, Hugo Grotius, and Samuel Pufendorf. Does that mean that Vattel's work is useless as a system of law? <clears throat> no, it contains a helpful chapter 19 of our native country and several things that relate to it. The section on naturalization within this chapter contains this statement. By the law of nature alone, children follow the conditions, the condition of their fathers and enter into all of their rights. The place of birth produces no change in this particular. Translated into the specifics of the 2008 presidential election, <clears throat> according to the law of nations, Barack Obama was ineligible to the office of the president, whether he was born in Honolulu or not, because his father was a citizen of the British Empire. According to the common law, on the other hand, if Obama had been born in Honolulu, he was eligible to occupy the office of president. Certainly, describing the relationship of reference legal systems is important in establishing an effective structure for a constitution. Perhaps the precedence of laws 
would be in a separate schedule to the main document in a new constitution. <clears throat> One of the goals of a multi-level constitution is to facilitate necessary constitutional change in smaller bites and to provide an alternative to the idea of federal judicial precedence that should also allow the people and their representatives at the state level to participate more effectively in constitutional change and interpretation. For example, any opinion of a Supreme Court of the states could be considered for ratification, thus avoiding the inclination of federal judicial opinions growing up around a constitution as de facto law, or what is commonly called legislating from the bench. No doubt, critics of the multi-level structure for a constitution will point to the impracticality of further engaging the people and their representatives, states, in more frequent constitutional change, perhaps pointing to the lack of success over the past 238 years. They would be correct about the failure of the citizenry to become more involved, but they have cause and effect backwards. If representative government is to work, it must engage the citizen more intensely than has happened in the past. An improved constitutional structure partly addresses that need by allowing citizen and state involvement in the process to be more effective. Reflecting on how the current constitutional system has been corrupted, consider the three sub-myths of the democracy myth and how they play out today. As already explained, the current system is designed to disengage the citizen from the principle of representative government and instead to offer the illusion that the citizen has acted responsibly by simply voting. We see this mentality in getting out the vote programs, which assume that all voters are equally prepared to cast intelligent votes. The glaring example of this is the awarding of, of a, a sticker identifying that the individual has voted. For the more sophisticated citizen, he or she is encouraged to understand the issues being contested in the election and the candidate's positions on these issues. Most of these are special interest pleas that have nothing to do with constitutional principles other than they consistently violate them. Take an issue like the minimum wage. Economists know that minimum wage legislation hurts the individuals at the lowest end of the economic ladder and have a negative effect on the health of the economy. Nonetheless, significant numbers of voters will turn out to cast their vote for an increased minimum wage, convinced theirs is both a rational decision and one based upon the requirements of social justice. However, their vote is actually based upon economic and constitutional illiteracy, or worse, self-interest. We don't need more citizens investigating political issues that are in effect destructive of constitutional law. We need more citizens who are literate in constitutional principles, citizens who recognize that voting upon special interest issues is ultimately destructive of their freedom. There is no single weapon that will bring about that favorable outcome, but providing an appropriate structured constitution is a logical first step.
Thank you, Phil. Excellent. Uh, I appreciate especially your analysis where our Constitution appears to be contradictory in it, you know, some of the amendments like the 16th Amendment uh, and doesn't explain how that relates to what the existing Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, as well as, of course, Article 1, Section 9 that prohibits capitation taxes. That's uh, taxes upon the heads of the individual citizens. So, indeed, there are problems, things that don't work. And you're right to say that uh, the Federalist Papers are inadequate in and of themselves. They do give us, as you say, a, an argument on the part of those who are advocating for the ratification of our Constitution. But they certainly miss out because they don't give the view of the anti-Federalists. And by the way, uh, to all of our listeners, I would invite you to our podcast uh, beginning um, the year 2021 uh, the very first day, January 1st uh, of 2021, we began a series looking at all 85 Federalist Papers and Anti-Federalist Papers, giving you hopefully a balanced view of the arguments presented by both sides uh, in that. And even yet, the Federalist and Anti-Federalist do not give us the full picture because the actual signatories, so to speak, to this constitutional republic and to this proposed constitution were the states themselves. And so we really need to look even further than the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, although those are a, a huge benefit to us. We need to also look at the ratifying conventions. Each uh, of, the, of the 13 states held a convention where they debated the different terms of the constitution, what they agreed with, what they didn't agree with, and ultimately a vote was cast as to whether that state was going to ratify uh, the Constitution or not ratify the Constitution. And there were a couple of states that held conventions like uh, Rhode Island that decided at first not to ratify. And later, of course, they held another convention where they decided to ratify. Now, the unfortunate thing historically for us is that those ratification debates, we don't have as thorough a representation for all 13 states of what took place in those ratification debates. One of the states where we have the most complete record would be the state of Virginia. In their ratification debate, accurate notes were kept. I mean, I think uh, Patrick Henry gave a speech lasting two days and oh, someone diligently was writing down his speech as it was given and he issued his uh, objections to the constitution, his problems with the constitution. But one thing that we can conclude that comes out of uh, all of those ratification debates was that this constitution would never have been ratified without a subsequent bill of rights. In other words, the first 10 amendments of the constitution were part of the deal that the states who ratified our constitution would never have agreed to ratify it if that bill of rights had not been promised. In fact, some of the anti-federalists said, we're not gonna ratify it until there is a bill of rights. We demand a convention right now to sit down, craft the bill of rights, and then we could talk about ratifying it. And the Federalists persuaded them, trust us, we will, in the very first Congress, the very first thing, we, we will propose and, and pass a Bill of Rights that can be voted on by the states to amend this Constitution. And the Anti-Federalists were taking a pretty good risk, as we know politically people make all kinds of promises that they do not fulfill, but um, they, they, were, they were willing to do it and the Federalists were faithful, Madison being the, the main driving force there to see that a Bill of Rights was the first thing that Congress considered, and it was ratified or passed by Congress, sent on to the states, and ratified by the states. So I agree with you, Phil, there is a problem here. 
and the problem is that uh, we don't have entirely the the ideas of all of the states who are actually party to this disagreement. We have what the Federalists wanted and what the Anti-Federalist objections were, but we don't have the actual parties to the contract, all of that record. And that, that record, sadly, has been uh, incomplete of, of each of the, uh, the state ratifying uh, conventions. So we do lack something there uh, in, in terms of that. But I would encourage people to avail yourselves of the 85 Federalist and Anti-Federalist broadcasts we did between, uh, well, uh, the beginning of 2001, and uh, we concluded it, I'm looking here at the notes, we concluded August 19th of 2022. So there's 85 different shows, hour-long shows, that uh, walk through the Federalist arguments and the Anti-Federalist arguments. And I think that is, a, I, to my knowledge, that is the only time that that has been done as a radio series. And, and we hope that that will be a, a great bl- benefit and blessing uh, to those who are wrestling with this. So when we look at the issues, you're absolutely right. The issues of our Constitution not having enough specificity uh, in, in many, many of the details. So uh, you're right to say that the 21st Amendment completely abolished the 18th Amendment. Nothing remained of the 18th Amendment because the 21st was very specific. It said, this is repealed. The 18th Amendment is repealed. The entire language is repealed. It's done. Unfortunately, uh, you might say that uh, there's nothing closer to eternal life than a government bureaucracy (laughs) because there were government bureaucracies that were created to enforce the 18th Amendment, such as the Internal Revenue Service came into existence as a result of the 18th Amendment and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms. Wait a minute, Bureau of Alcohol, how come that agency is still named the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, when we took that power away from the federal government to have any regulation on alcohol whatsoever. And yet the agency created, the federal agency created under the 18th Amendment as a result of the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, Volstead Act that uh, resulted. The, the, that agency continues to exist. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, Explosives, etc. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that is a huge problem. But you cannot rein in some of these things. Uh, that should have been clearly reined in. But uh, the issue of taxation, at least to those who passed it, was rather clear that they understood the 16th Amendment did not apply to citizens. It only applied to corporations as well as applying to non-resident aliens, that is, people who were here with a green card and had permission to work uh, but were not citizens of the country. Uh, clearly, actually, the Supreme Court in the, in the years following the supposed ratification of the 16th Amendment, years following the Supreme Court did several decisions that basically said 16th Amendment did not allow the taxation, direct taxation of citizens, that the uh, restriction on capitation taxes, Article 1, Section uh, 9, as well as Article 1, Section 2, uh, that the, uh, any direct taxes must be apportioned, and that is the tax bill must be sent to the state. None of that was changed, and the Supreme Court recognized that. But you're absolutely right. The language of the 16th Amendment is not clear enough, and we're not going to rely on judges and what they said even the years following the supposed ratification of the 16th Amendment. And the result is today we have every citizen being taxed heavily and controlled entirely by the IRS, completely against uh, 
our founders' vision, as well as those who ratified or, or proposed and uh, supposedly ratified the 16th Amendment. For example, Howard Taft, when he was president, he was the one that got the ball rolling for the 16th Amendment. And in doing so, he made it very clear that this was in order to tax corporations. Now, why did he want to tax corporations? It wasn't because they needed the revenue. Amazing as that might sound, the federal government did not need any revenue. It was uh, functioning in, in the small area that was given to it by the Constitution, completely with the revenues available through the tariffs and so on. And only in time of war did they need to do anything like direct taxes. So it wasn't a revenue uh, ga gathering scheme. Rather, uh, Howard Taft, uh, pr President Taft, as well as pr prior to him, President Theodore Roosevelt, they were both fighting against the trusts. That is these huge monopolies that have been created, uh, Standard Oil being perhaps the most notorious of those monopolies. But these monopolies that were created and they were structured in such a way that it couldn't be proven that they were a monopoly and therefore be broken up under the Sherman Antitrust Act. So these problems of how to get at the information of these corporations to be able to break up those trusts, that's really what the purpose of the 16th Amendment originally was. By taxing these corporations, they could force the corporations to open their books, reveal year to year exactly what their operations were, and therefore these hidden monopolies could be uncovered by forcing these corporations to open up their books. That was the real purpose of the 16th Amendment, according to both TR, Teddy Roosevelt, that's what his purpose was in proposing this uh, idea, as well as uh, William Howard Taft, who actually uh, was the one that initially proposed it and got it uh, moving legislatively uh, in the House of Representatives. So uh, the problem, you're absolutely right, the problem of the 16th Amendment is that it is not as specific and as clear as it needs to be. We have to add all kinds of things. What the uh, Howard Ta William Howard Taft speech was before Congress that laid out the purpose of it and so on. All of these things uh, aren't as clear as they need to be in the explicit language of the Constitution itself. And so I love your proposal to say, hey, we need at the same time we're putting together a new Constitution, be putting together something similar to the Federalist essays explaining what this Constitution actually means. And also, you're absolutely right, we need a glossary of terms because we know people monkey around with human language. And over the course of 238 years now, it is easy for language to have shifted enough in meaning that what they understood clearly they meant 238 years ago today might not be as clear. So having a, a glossary that sets in, in stone, this is the meaning of this word. Uh, and that word, I, I fully, fully agree with that. I think the biggest problem we have in our current mess, as well as how do we fix this mess and, and so on, is the problem is we have an electorate that doesn't understand our form of government. That is, you ask the average person on the street, what form of government do we have? And they will tell you, we have a democracy. And yet you read, even in the Federalist Papers, our, our founders decried a democracy because in a democracy, law is whatever 50% plus one of those who vote, that's whatever, whatever that's what law is. So, you know, if 50% plus one in Nazi Germany said, yeah, yeah, go ahead and throw the Jews into the oven, gas them, we don't care, let's do that. 
Well, that becomes the law in a democracy, which means in a democracy, no one, no one has their God-given rights protected. But in a republic, and indeed the, in the constitutional republic proposed by our founders, the idea is not a democracy at all. It is a republic in which there is a fixed law, the laws of nature, nature's God, that cannot be changed even by any edict of man, even by legislation passed by Congress. They cannot change the laws of the universe and say, well, let's spill ink on a piece of paper and suspend the law of gravity. Well, of course, they can't do that. That's the laws of the universe. And our founders were seeking to say, we want to root and ground this new constitutional republic in those laws of the universe, the laws of nature and nature's God. So the bigger problem, I think, is how do we get an electorate, those who actually go to the polls and actually cast a ballot and vote for uh, representatives in the House and representatives in the Senate and indeed the chief executive uh, in, in the presidential role, how do we uh, structure a republic such that those people who are going to the polls actually know what form of government we have? And I think uh, a course ought to be offered, and that's what we do at Institute on the Constitution. By the way, you go to the website, theamericanview.com. There you can find a free course that we offer online of uh, our U.S. Constitution. I also could refer you to our uh, very detailed course that uh, we have offered here at We the People, the Constitution Matters, a clause by clause, phrase by phrase analysis of our Constitution uh, was done uh, on the air. And so we would refer to our, our website, 1180WFYL.com, uh, and then just click podcast there. You'll see that we're all the way down uh, at the very end of or very bottom of that list of that drop down menu. But we have an entire course that you could take by listening to those podcasts of our constitutional analysis uh, detail by uh, detail. It began uh, in the uh, 20, uh, 2019. Uh, and uh, we, would, we would really encourage you to uh, taking that, uh, that course, our constitutional analysis series. It was in February 8th of 2019. Uh, and again, that's a resource that we encourage you to, 1180WFYL.com. Click on podcast, go down to the end, uh, the bottom of the list there, We the People, the Constitution Matters. Because I think what we really need to structure, and I, I don't know exactly how to do this, but is some test by which we can evaluate whether someone would be eligible to vote. That is, we just shouldn't give voting power to anyone who can breathe and they reach the age of 18 years old, which is you know currently what we do. In fact, there are some states where they're proposing to lower the voting age. I've heard some proposals to vote, lower it down to 13. Can you imagine a 13 year old you know, deciding who's president, a 13 year old? Because by the way, uh, the constitutional amendment that fixed the age at 18 did not fix a lower limit. It said that no state could actually restrict voting from someone who was 18 and above. It didn't say you couldn't go below. So why don't we pick a three-year-old? You know, why don't we say, eh, yeah, let's have three-year-olds vote. Well, of course, three-year-old doesn't understand our form of government. A three-year-old's not going to be able to make wise decisions. I think that's the crux of the problem. So I think we need uh, a course. And like I said, there's courses available, Institute on the Constitution. Here, we the people, Constitution Matters a course taken by every person who wants to vote, and they have to pass a test, a test to see if their understanding of the Constitution is valid. For example, uh, some surveys have been done asking people, uh, how, uh, how many rights are protected by the First Amendment? Can you name the five rights protected by the First Amendment? 
And a lot of people come up with, oh, yeah, I guess it's freedom of speech and, and freedom of the press. But by, beyond one or two, almost, uh, you know, it's, it's less than a three or four percent of the populace uh, polled that actually get all five correct. And so if a person doesn't know the First Amendment, they don't know the five freedoms. But wait a minute, should we give them the power to choose the president? or the power to, to choose a, a congressman or a, a senator? Should that be something that we do? No, I think we should have a test by which we restrict those who are given the power to vote. Now, I know people will be a huge hue and cry of, this is terrible, this is discrimination. No, no, no. We need to understand what the purpose of voting is. The purpose of voting is to preserve a constitutional republic. And so if you have communist vote, you know, like AOC, for example, or Bernie Sanders, a socialist, communist, something in that category. If you have these people vote and if you have them elected to office, what are they going to do? They're going to push communism. They're going to push socialism. They're not going to preserve our constitutional republic. And I think that's a huge mistake. People like AOC and Bernie Sanders should be thrown out of office as those who are violating their very oath of office, not to mention Biden violating his oath of office. Uh, so that's another aspect we, we could talk about of structuring the Constitution, whereby those who violate their oath of office uh, uh, can be severely disciplined for any uh, such uh, habits. Uh, obviously, the impeachment process we have now doesn't really work to accomplish that. But those are some of my thoughts, Phil, about uh, uh, structuring a new constitution that would actually preserve our, our constitutional republic. What are your thoughts? Well, I think those are great thoughts, <clears throat> and uh, particularly the the uh, additional idea about no uh, capitation. Um, I, I think that's an important part that part of that that total picture. Uh, you know, I made a comment uh, very early about. <clears throat> This is a complex contract that uh, has been created, or in this, the case of the new constitution uh, that we're hypothetically uh, discussing here, uh, that, that is really a complex contract. Now, how complex? Um, let me relate a personal experience I had. Um, many years ago, I was a consultant for a major um, major uh, accounting and, and management consulting firm. <clears throat> and a hospital in the area um, became the recipient after a legal case uh, of immense funds that had been held back by the, the uh, uh, people who had operated the trust prior. And so <clears throat> the big question was how could they, um, how could they establish uh, from a relatively small hospital how could they establish a you know a world class uh, facility? So I was called in to handle the information systems part, all the information systems part for this hospital. I worked uh, probably a month or two just building the contract. The size of that contract, I believe, exceeded the Constitution of the United States. It was, of course, multiple levels. Now, bear in mind, we're not talking about a contract to operate the hospital here, just as the information systems department. Consider that when you write a, a contract to uh, 
um, for a federation like the United States, you're talking about the entire nation, not just a single hospital or not just a single department within the hospital. The immensity of this is just overwhelming. Uh, agreed. And that's why it's so, well, we've, we've got multiple problems. And one of which is how do you keep the federal government within the bounds that were created? And I think they did create some clear boundaries, but uh, obviously those boundaries have been lost as the states have surrendered their role in this, this contract. And their role in this contract was to basically keep the federal government honest, keep the federal government within the boundaries of, of the Constitution. Uh, and so we look at, well, what happened to to end that? Well, it began what we've already talked about with the 16th Amendment, because as long as the federal government could take money directly out of the pockets of the citizens, that was the beginning of the end by which the states could actually keep a check on the government. The other end, of course, was the 17th Amendment, which had ended the uh, appointment, really, of senators were appointed, not elected, appointed by the state legislature, which meant the state legislature could communicate with their senators exactly what they wanted the senators to do and how they wanted the senators to vote. In essence, the senators represented the state legislatures. So if the you know federal government was proposing sending, oh, let's spend a couple billion dollars on a bridge to nowhere in Alaska. Well, that money is going to come out of the pockets of the citizens of the state. And before the 16th Amendment, if it was direct taxation, it would be the state that would have to determine how to draw that money out of the citizens' pockets. And so if the citizens were unhappy with their state legislators, they would fire them. So there was the, the check and balance control was much greater before the 16th and 17th Amendment to keep the federal government in check. But once the federal government could take money directly out of the pockets of the citizens and then, you know, offer a portion of that money back as a grant to the state. Let's give you a grant for building highways and, oh, let's give you a grant for building your schools and, oh, firehouses and whatever it is. But all of that grant money, of course, comes with strings attached, which means if the state does not do what the federal government wants it to do, ah, that money is cut off. And the state will not uh, be able to function financially because so much money is going to the federal government, uh, bypassing the state altogether, that the federal government gets into the driver's seat. And, uh, you know, the state has basically become a, a backseat driver. It might say something or complain, but even if it complains a little bit too much, ah, it's not going to be favored by the federal government, which means it won't get the funding that it finds essential to continue uh, fulfilling its function. So this system broke down, I think, most clearly at the 16th and 17th Amendment. And of course, the 18th Amendment was another example of the egregious overreach of, of the federal federal government as well. Uh, but uh, the 21st undid that. We need, uh, you know, a, a 28th, 29th Amendment that undoes the 16th and undoes uh, the 17th Amendment to, to restore it. But uh, yeah, and anyway, it, it, it's a huge problem that has been created. Well, I certainly agree with you about the, the 16th and the 17th Amendment. Uh, you made a comment about the illiterate uh, electorate uh, and the problem that that creates. And I think you mentioned something about uh, surveys that were taken on the street and so forth. And uh, I saw one. I mean, I, my suspicion is that you were not referring to a, a survey that was taken in the Watts section of Los Angeles. No, uh, no, no. Uh, <clears throat> 
I have seen surveys that have do been done on sidewalks at the University of California at Berkeley, considered to be one of our finest educational institutions. And the students were asked various questions in civics and geography and so forth. And the, the, uh, the illiteracy, the, <laughs> it's just, it was overwhelming. You couldn't believe these are our finest students. Can hmm. you imagine what the rest are like? So uh, the big problem, as you mentioned, is how do we get voters educated? That's the point of our current series about a, a hypothetical new constitution. Now, I want to emphasize at this point that there is no political movement behind the series, none whatsoever. Okay, and I believe a political movement would be counterproductive. The basic idea is, frankly, we're trying to provoke people because if you get into an argument, that's when people start to think. They may not think, <laughs> they may not think clearly, but at least they start to think. And that's all we're attempting to do with this series, to get people to think about the principles and about the, the, the violations of constitutional law that are going on in the United States. <clears throat> And, and I think this is a very appropriate moment for that to be taking place. I mean, look at the look at the Biden crime family and what they ha, has been revealed. I mean, there's probably far more than what has been revealed thus far of at least 10 million in bribes. And there's who knows how many more millions that have not been revealed that obviously have been used by foreign governments, the Ukraine, uh, communist China. Uh, and we hear Romania, and I don't even know what the Romanian issue is about. But anyway, that they were buying influence with the vice president of the United States. And when this corruption was begun to be a little bit exposed, and President Trump actually asked questions of the current president of the Ukraine about the was there an investigation possible, or you know could there be an investigation of of this corruption that took place, whereby. Vice President Biden, he admitted it. He Actually, there's a video that's been seen hundreds of millions of times, I think, at this point in time, where he admitted that he got the prosecutor in the Ukraine fired. And he was threatening the Ukraine that if they didn't fire the prosecutor who, who was investigating his son, Hunter Biden, on the Burisma board, if that prosecutor was not fired within a few hours of him departing that country, that country would not receive their one billion something in aid. And he held that threat. If you don't do it, the money's not going to come to you. And he had the power to do that as the vice president of the United States. And lo and behold, he swears, yes, the guy was fired within hours of him making that threat. So this kind of corruption is so extreme at this point in time. And I think more and more Americans are becoming aware of it to say, well, wait a minute. The uh, uh, problem here is very deep because if we have this level of corruption this level of treason, because it is indeed treason to be selling out the decisions of your country for cash to you so that it favors one country and, and foreign policy is being bought uh, by the vice president of the United States with millions of dollars. This kind of corruption going on. And what's going to happen? Well, there is you know, a call to impeach. But consider what's being done in the, in the soft handling of that with what's being done with Trump. Uh, his, you know, he had some papers that were, 
there's a debate as to whether these papers should be the National Archives. Anyway, he's being put on trial. He's been impeached twice and his impeachments did not remove him from office. But all this is happening when when Joe Biden has done the same thing and far worse than the same thing. So clearly what's happening in America today is that we have a two tiered system of justice. If your name is Joe Biden or if you're connected with Joe Biden, you can get away with all kinds of crimes, including treason, and you get a free pass. But if you made some mistake in terms of some paperwork like Trump, up, up, no, 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 we're going to we're going to throw the book at you. We're going to seek to put you behind bars. And I think more Americans are waking up that this is what's happening. And there's a problem that's be- that Americans are becoming aware of that says something needs to change. And that, that's an opportunity for us to help educate the American people. Well, you mentioned the uh, <clears throat> the Ukraine involvement. I have seen that the cost of our involvement in the Ukraine has now reached $900 per household and is growing. And <clears throat> we'll never see a bill, which I think is unfortunate. You know, we'll never see a bill for this. It all gets lumped into the general fund. And, you know, that general fund, what are we up to now? How many trillions of dollars does the uh, federal government uh, squander each year? It's all beyond the the ability of anybody to uh, get any sense from it at all. There's no possibility of accountability with numbers that large. So I think that there there's our problem. I mean... If we're going to go into places like this and we're going to have costs involved with it, let's pass the, the specific bill on to the, the taxpayer. They'll erupt in a hurry. <laughs> yes, indeed. If I was given a bill for $900 for that mess in Ukraine that's doing nothing for us here in America, nothing. In fact, it might be helping Russia. Uh, for all we know, that Russia is benefiting from this because they're getting a war experience. And uh, that, anyway, it, it's a mess. And indeed, when we look at uh, what's happening there, it is a waste of lives and a waste of, of treasure. In fact, we know that the Ukraine tried to come to a peace treaty with Russia. And guess what? Our government told them, no way. NATO told him, no way, you're going to continue this war even though you don't want to. I was like, what? This is insanity. It really has nothing to do even with the, the, the well-being of the people of Ukraine. I think it has everything to do with NATO and everything to do with the, their desire for a new world order. And you got to destroy something to build back better. Yeah, that's right. You got to destroy something before you build back better. So I, I think that's what's going on. But the tragic thing for our own well-being as a country is this means that our military is being weakened you know we're sending munitions overseas that we don't have replacements for you know billions and billions of dollars like you say have been spent over there and a lot of that munitions that uh, we don't have if we had to go to war and protect our own country so instead of protecting our own country like oh yeah protecting the southern border (laughs) no we're not going to protect the southern border we're going to let all the illegals come across and we're going to protect the border of ukraine this makes no sense. But this is what happens when you have a a government that is no longer following the founding vision uh, that is uh, as as clearly laid out in the Declaration of Independence as well as our Constitution, which is why we exist here at We the People, the Constitution Matters. And we invite you to participate in our conversation. Uh, Email us, dwhitney at theamericanview.com and uh, join us, invite your friends to join us Friday mornings at 8 a.m. 
as We the People, the Constitution Matters comes to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL.